everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRose Show. Today's guest is Jan Van Eck, the CEO of Van Eck Funds. Van Eck Funds was one of the first asset managers to offer investors access to international markets. It invested in gold back in 1968, emerging markets in 93, exchange-traded funds in 2006, and digital assets in 2017. Vanek manages approximately $70 billion in assets, including mutual funds, ETFs, and institutional accounts. In this episode, Jan Van Eck shared his macro framework, his viewpoint on the economy. We also talked about why now is the time to think about investing in fixed income. We talked about the Fed, inflation. We got Jan's views on commodities, Bitcoin amid the FTX fiasco, and much, much more. Really enjoyed this conversation with Jan, and I think you will too. Jan Van Eck, CEO of Van Eck Funds, one of the world's largest ETF sponsors. It is so great to welcome you to the show. Great, great to have you on. An honor to be here, Julia. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you, Jan, especially um, as someone who's kind of known for identifying some macro themes and trends over the years. So I was hoping maybe we could just kind of start with your overall macro picture today, and then we can kind of start to zoom in on some of the themes that might come up. Sure. Um, maybe if I could just explain what I mean by macro a little bit by context, uh, which is simply two, I would say, premises. Number one, that the financial markets really um, are in part of an ecosystem that's affected by the economy, obviously, politics and technology. So there are things outside that are happening and changing outside the world that suggest what you should be invested in, such as what asset classes. For example, the rise of China and emerging markets led to the inclusion of emerging markets in your portfolio, whereas before that, it wasn't in there. Um, and that's the same for, for gold and commodities during different cycles as well. So that's what I mean by macro. The other aspect of, of macro that we like to point out is how rapidly the world can change uh, of a little bit of a historical background. Um, and our firm was founded, uh, my father started the firm is best known for starting the first gold fund in 1968. Gold had been fixed against the US dollar for 170 years. And he said, that's gonna change and it's gonna change dramatically. And it did in the 1970s when gold went from 35 to $800 an ounce. So that's the, sorry for all the background, but that's what I think about as far as macro. Um, should I talk about where we are now in a couple sentences? Yeah, go for it. Let's do it. I think 2022 can be summarized actually in one sentence. The Fed raised rates. Interest rates went up. That drove bond prices down and it drove stock PE ratios, what we call multiples down uh, to adjust for that rise in rates. Um, and that's really it. The world economy was fine. The world, the U.S. economy was fine. Unemployment is low. Uh, but the Fed really changed the calculus of what financial assets should be priced at. I think that's largely done, that rate increase cycle. So um, now investors are, are offered really attractive interest rates, I think, for, for some kind of fixed income. And fixed income can and should be a lot bigger part of people's portfolios than it was a year ago. Mm. Let's talk about like, what do you mean? Like fixed income should be a bigger part because I think often folks talk about, you know, the 60, 40 portfolio. Are you talking about like kind of rethinking that kind of construct? Yeah. I mean, 
we talk about 60-40 in our industry. Listen, we have to provide retirement solutions for millions of Americans, but there's absolutely no support for 60-40. Uh, 60-40 is just a point in time, people's estimates based on backward looking volatility of stocks and bonds. And I more care about what my returns are going to be looking like going forward. And, um, and, the, and I think more about total return. And there are periods of time where fixed income and high yield in particular uh, have outperformed uh, have outperformed equities. And so, uh, you know, you have to pivot around something, but I would be majority weighted in fixed income right now and throw the kind of 60-40 rubric out the window. Real quick following, do you think 60-40 is dead? Is it outdated with such a, like a different time? Well, like I say, our industry has to provide investment solutions, retirement solutions, right? Because we're all, we do our own retirement through the 401k programs and things like that. So you, you have to have a rule of thumb. I'm just pointing out that rule of thumb has really no academic support. And, um, and as shown in this year, you know, it can be pretty unreliable. So that's why I tend to start with what's the macro, what is your macro outlook? Um, but no, to answer your question, I don't think our industry really can move away from it because, you know, what people call market timing or tactical moves between uh, fixed income and equities, no one really has a great track record in that. So that's the that's the issue from an industry perspective. Mm-hmm. And going back to your point about um, fixed income looking like much more attractive, like it sounds to me like that's somewhere like you would want to deploy capital. We're within the universe of fixed income. Like, what is attractive to you in that that universe? So, going into next year, my base case, and I'm happy to go into details, is that the economy is going to be okay. Um, you know, maybe it slows a little bit. I don't see a deep recession right now, and I think corporate earnings won't do that well. So, in that environment, I'm generally okay to own all kinds of fixed income because I don't think if you don't get a deep recession, then default risks for high yield aren't going to increase. So um, the 8% or so that you're getting now on high yield is pretty attractive. What I do worry about a little bit, not to get too technical, but is the, the longer duration fixed income, because short-term interest rates are higher than long-term, but we don't see uh, inflation going below 3% next year. So I think long-term fixed income investors are going to say, well, wait a minute, if inflation is 3%, I want to get paid more than that. I got to pay, get paid a real rate of return. And I'm not sure, you know, 3.75%, which is what you get now, is, is really going to be enough. So I guess I'd stay a little bit shorter term, but overall, I'd put more than 50% of my portfolio in fixed income from a total return perspective. Mm-hmm. Um when you say duration, is that just because is that like interest rate sensitivity? I'm not a bond investor, so I don't know the the vernacular per se. But yeah, that's exactly right. It's sort of like you know, short term is ten, the two year, and long term is the ten year, or the thirty year, and um, interest rate changes have a much bigger effect on your um, on the bond price the further you go out. So um, yeah, so that's that's why so stay shorter term in your in your fixed income. Got it. Um, that, that makes sense. But, but I would buy corporates and all con- converts and all kinds of different, uh, maybe even dividend equities, uh, because I'm not really worried about the recession. Yeah. 
Well, Jan, what I love about hosting this podcast is I have so many different conversations and different viewpoints. And I think that's really helpful for the audience too. And um, I've had a number of folks who've been very bearish and thinking we're gonna have a long protracted recession. And I'm not hearing that from you. So um, walk me through like how you get to your thesis or what is it that's making you a bit more optimistic about the state of the economy? What are you looking at? Well, I mean, from a fixed income perspective, I guess when I hear deep recession, I just want to know who can't pay me back on my on my bonds. So let's start with the municipal bond market. Uh, states and, and municipalities, especially investment grade, but they rarely default. So you'd have to have some kind of um, really bad cycle for default rates in investment grade uh, municipals to increase. And then take corporate high yield. So uh, US corporations are in really good financial position. They borrowed money uh, at very low interest rates, you know, kind of over the last several years, and, um, and they're not very leveraged. So it would take a lot of economic damage, I think, to cause default rates to go high. So let me let me use some numbers, if you will. If you put $100 in high yield bonds, at the high end, 5% might default. And then you still get some money back. So it's not like the high yield company defaults and goes to zero. So let's say that five cents out of your dollar defaults, but you get half of that back. So you've only lost two and a half percent on that from a total return perspective. I think at 8% interest rates for high yield, you're getting paid to absorb that two and a half percent risk, right? It goes uh, eight minus two and a half is, um, is five and a half, right? So um, so you've got that, you've got that cushion. I think five and a half percent is not bad return in that bad case. That's why I don't freak, those talking heads don't freak me out too much. Mm-hmm. How about, um, what's your kind of thought or outlook on equities? Uh, I think equities, so we've had this reset in interest rates, and um, I don't think that earnings, we we just had a really great third quarter earnings, I would say very solid, given that people were really worried about the economy. Uh, You've got one sector in trouble, which is obviously real estate, which is highly dependent on interest rates, and and that's going to slow. Let's call that in a recession. But for the market overall, um, I, I see earnings being fine. Um, and but I don't see the impetus for a lot of increase in profits next year, which is why, again, I kind of prefer fixed income over equities. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking about fixed income, you also brought up inflation. And I mean, that seems to be like the topic, um, you know, everywhere these days. What is your thought process for inflation or your outlook there? And do you think well, I'll ask you some other following questions to it, but let's let's just kind of start there. Sure. So um, let's just talk about inflation, first of all, because I think a lot of data that we talk about in the financial press are misleading. What general, The U.S. economy is generally a services economy. What drives inflation is wage expectations. So I know we talk a lot about uh, gas prices at the pump and OPEC and this and that and the other thing, and that may affect our, our thinking about inflation. But at the end of the day, um, and we have supply chain shortages and ag prices, but all that stuff gets solved in a matter of time. The market will give, you know, will plant more corn globally uh, and we can respond to other kind of shorter term issues. But what really matters are inflation expectations in the labor market. 
Uh, the labor market is very tight. Um, and so that's what makes me worried about inflation going forward. And that's why I don't think it'll fall off the, you know, it won't go back to 2% next year. So that's really what we're looking at. The problem, uh, Julia, is that it's very hard to know what is going on with the labor market. I mean, here we are in November of 2022, and unemployment is still near all-time lows, right? So the Fed has been raising rates or talking about raising rates for a full year, and nothing has happened yet to the labor market. And we just, I think, also don't know what the COVID effects are on people's desire to work and to go back to work. So there's not a ton of visibility there, um, but that's what I think you need to look at. And, and, the, and the last point I would make is that services inflation really accelerated. Again, people aren't paying attention to this, but accelerated over the summer, whereas you know some commodity prices were going down. So um, I, I think inflation, that's what to look for in inflation. And I think it will be more persistent maybe than people, uh, people think. Hmm. Uh, having said that, um, you know, commodities, I think, are, are going to be well supported because China seems to be sort of uh, moving beyond COVID and there have been historically a big driver of the, the world economy. So um, so I think commodities are going to be a, a good investment. It's just that, um, you know, they don't they aren't really what matters to persistent inflation. Got it. So do you think the two percent inflation target, is it just kind of? unrealistic don't you think so <laughs> i'm asking if you think so <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i just think that um again given that the labor market hasn't weakened you know weakened that much um and it, i i just don't i don't see i don't see it falling um i think people still want i think that inflationary cycle psychology is still out there so um i i Look, I, I, it will fall, no doubt, mathematically, we know that. But whether it'll get to 2% next year, I doubt it. Yeah. Um, I haven't. I just want to break up an idea because this came up on two episodes ago. So this was like the Danielle DiMartino Booth episode for folks watching and listening. And she brought up a point, and I'd, I'd love to get kind of your reaction. And I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing here. But one of the things about um, labor right now is you've had a lot of layoffs in Silicon Valley, for example, a lot of, but a lot of folks, there's more like white collar jobs and there's a lot of severance there. So I would, maybe there, maybe there could be a lag. Do you think that might be a factor? Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, a couple of factors, right? Um, and that's why I'm saying it's kind of amazing in November of 2022 that we don't have more visibility on the labor market, right? But the stimulus checks really you know, fatten people's bank accounts. So they have a lot more runway than they would in a normal uh, Fed tightening cycle. Um, so that, that I think is, is one of the reasons. Uh, and so, you know, you've got multiple factors going on besides the ones you mentioned. You also brought up commodities and um, you mentioned like the pioneering work that your father did. Um, I think 1968 had the first gold, was the first gold fund, is that right? Okay. Yeah. And from what I understand um, from reading, you were also very um, early to the ETFs on the gold side of things in like two, 2006. You can correct the record here, but I want to hear more on your thoughts on commodities, just kind of given the history of the firm and, and um, you know, how you all have been able to spot and identify trends. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I've been saying for a year, commodity equities um, in particular are a great investment. And I still think um, a lot of people, a lot more people are saying that now that since they um, were the top performing sector in equities this year. But 
the way I look at it is um, we actually have a multi-year energy transition investable trend, if you will. What do I mean by that? We, we want to move towards a lower carbon future, and that affects demand for metals and lots of different commodities, as you know. And so there's going to be government policies and consumer behavior that will change demand for solar, wind, uh, renewables, battery storage, you know, what we call green metals, lots of different things. And we think that that's really underpinning, regardless of the short-term Fed cycle, that's a multi-year investable trend. Combined with the fact that a lot of these companies are very low price to earnings ratios. And the reason for that is investors are skeptical. We had a full decade, basically, of a bear market in commodities during the 2000s. And a lot of um, companies had to cut CapEx, cut employment. Oil companies are very disciplined. Mining companies are very disciplined. And so they're cheap. You've got, I think, a good demand story, um, and you've also got supply constraints because it's hard to in radically increase oil production or metals production. So, uh, so that's uh, you know that's sort of a structural support trend I think that we're at right now. Yeah, um, we've mentioned some ideas like where you might want to be putting capital work. What are the places that you're like just kind of avoiding, just not not the right time right now, or just it's not the right environment. Um, listen, I, I think that there's very few things that are radically mispriced in the market. Like sometimes there are like a year ago, growth stocks were obviously way overvalued. Uh, you know, you had private venture capital deals going at 40 or 50 times revenue. So I don't think there's anything that extreme. Um, like I was saying before, I'd want to stay a little bit shorter in my you know fixed income portfolio. Um, but uh, I, I think a lot of these risks, like sanctions risk vis-a-vis -vis China, have been priced in. So um, the thing is, I think, um, Julia, what people are still a little bit too focused on the next equity rally. And um, I, I think that's why people are really going to underinvest in fixed income. I guess that's my big overarching theme. And, and let me just give you a statistic. So we're in an inflationary cycle. In the 1970s, if you look at stocks and bonds, bonds actually, even in the, you know, inflation is supposed to hurt bond prices, and it does, but still bonds outperform stocks during that time period. And there's other time periods where high yield bonds will outperform stocks. So if I guess I had one kind of thing to, to say, stay away from, stop, put away your trigger finger from always your inclination is to buy more stocks. Uh, and look at some of the value in bonds. I yeah. know it's been a horrible year for bonds, but uh, you know that's kind of my that's kind of my thought. Don't over you know over chase equities. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, hasn't it been a, it's been a bad year for bonds and stocks though? Is that that's not no, it's been a horrible year, but that means a lot of to me a lot of value creation in bonds. That's mm, kind of interesting. Um, okay, so you you point out that a lot of folks are probably too focused on the next equity rally. Let me ask you this: Is it is it because they're expecting, um, you know, the Fed, uh, Fed, the Fed put, if you will, or Fed to, I don't know, do something where it makes it more, more attractive to be in stocks again? Exactly. I mean, that's all what we're focused on, right? It's like the question. Very few, like on CNBC, right? They don't say, "Hey, are you really going to get eight percent? You can get eight percent in high yield. Are you really going to get that in equities next year?" No. They're always like, "Oh, is the Fed pivoting?" 
what's the next interest rate going to height you know going to be when's the last one going to be so i can jump more into equities <laughs> like okay but look at fixed income you know maybe it's not as exciting to talk about but i think you know you you get a lot less volatility and you get this compounding effect that's that's why bonds did so well in the 70s and during other time periods because you if you're getting paid 8% you know, that compounds at the end of a 12 month period, you, you invest 100 bucks, you have 108 bucks, and then you get the 8% on the 108 bucks, right? So that's why, you know, that's really why fixed income can be, you know, is an underappreciated part of people's portfolios. Would you want to pick your spots in high yield? Like, I'm just wondering if maybe during the pandemic with some of the stimulus or whatnot, like some companies that maybe should have been zombies were propped up. I don't know. Like, I'm not the expert in the space, but you probably want to be careful, right? Picking your spot within a high yield. I don't know. Um, I guess, you know, it's hard to say. I would say, obviously, real estate's in a recession, but the market is so good at pricing these things in that those investments already have gone down a lot. So uh, as I said before, I'm not really sure anything is particularly uh, mispriced at this point in time. Um, I think that uh, we, we have like, for example, a fallen angel high yield ETF that focuses more on, let's call it double Bs. So it's a little bit higher in credit quality, but um, even that I wouldn't necessarily overweight at, at this point. Um, I, I'd get, I'd go for broader high yield as well. I, I really think that you're not seeing those credit downgrades that come with a with a recession yet. That's a little bit more of a lagging indicator, um, and I'm just not seeing that level of distress right now. Gotcha. Um, you also um, mentioned like bonds did well; they outperformed um, in the 1970s. And one of the things I kind of noticed about you, Jan, um, you, well, on your website for folks watching, and you you can fill them. You have a lot of videos on kind of financial market economic history, if you will, a lot of these videos. I didn't have time to watch them all. I, I was watching part of one before we started this. Um, and so it, it seems to me that you look at history. How do you kind of analogize? I know things rhyme. I don't, they don't always repeat themselves, but how do you kind of analogize the period that we're in if you kind of look back through history? Because you did mention the 1970s. Is that kind of what you see? Uh, so, you know, History doesn't like I don't have a base case in history. I think that's kind of what, what I say is use history to identify all the potential outcomes. And only after you've done that, should you say, what's the likelihood? Right. So go to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. People are like, ah, oh, that's not going to happen. Well, of course, it's a possibility. Right. And it, and it should be priced in. So uh, a lot of the 2023 outlook to me depends on the Fed. The Fed right now has a lot of credibility. So what I was talking about investing in fixed income, that is aligned with the thesis that the Fed will retain the market's um, respect, if you will, and be a little bit maybe more aggressive than the market would like, but the market will still, um, will still believe that the Fed is sort of, if you will, in control. The alternative scenario of the 1970s is when people very much lost faith in the Fed um, and and then gold and, and commodities. And I would say this cycle, Bitcoin will do really well. So right now, Julia, I think we'd have to get together again in, in probably a year or two. So let's say that we do hit a recessionary time period, maybe, you know, as I said, in a year or two. 
will the market be concerned that the Fed is too soft and will start cutting rates too much and not and lose its discipline on inflation? And that's, you know, that's a good scenario for stores of value like gold and Bitcoin. But right now we're not there. We're almost at peak Fed credibility. Um, so that's when you want to own fixed income. Mm. Um, peak Fed credibility and why, why you want to own fixed income. Um, can we just dig a little bit, like double click a little bit more on, um, you know, on the Fed? And you mentioned um, almost like peak Fed credibility. Is it because they're not, I don't, I don't know how to ask it. Is, is it because they're not so worried about what the market is doing? Like, I just want to hear your thoughts on kind of what the Fed's been doing in um the market will react, right? I mean, you have Fed governors talking. I heard today one of them talked about maybe 7% short-term interest rates. I mean, that they're not scared of, you know, they're not. During the last decade, when we were re we remember we had a financial crisis. Our banks needed to make profits so that they could have more equity, so we could have a safer financial system. And the Fed kept interest rates super low, and they wanted the financial markets to be high in that environment. Now that Fed is basically saying, I don't care about the price of this, you know, what's happening in the stock market or the bond market. I'm going to kill inflation. I'm going to raise rates. And so, um, you know, and frankly, I think they probably are going into their Thanksgiving celebration saying job well done. I mean, so far, nothing is broken in the financial, you know, prices are down, but nothing is broken. There haven't been bouts of illiquidity. It's been a pretty orderly year so far in the financial market. So I think the Fed is pretty happy and they're they're not going to give up now, right? Fed, Powell is is going to make sure that he slays inflation. That's, you know, he doesn't, you know, he's like the Paul Volcker poster on his wall or something. So, um, you know, that's what I mean by the Fed peak credibility. And he, they're willing to almost make a policy mistake on the other side by over tightening. Yeah. So again, that's that's OK for fixed income investors. Yeah. I'm wondering too, like, um, I, I'm a millennial, so I came came of age right around the financial crisis, like graduated a couple years after. But I wonder if it, I wonder if it creates like an opportunity too for like kind of newer investors to get in at more attractive valuations. So, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, I think the only thing is it's unlikely to me that um, you're going to have this incredible fall on interest rates like we did over the last 40 years, right? When interest rates, the 10-year went from 20% down to 1%. I mean, that is such a tailwind for stock and bond prices. And so, um, yes, entry points today are cheaper, but I'm not sure you get that, you know, that kind of artificial lift, if you will, by interest rates going back down towards 1%. True. Yeah. I missed that one. I guess I didn't have any money when I graduated um, to, to play along. Um, you mentioned gold and Bitcoin, and I, I do want to talk about those asset classes. I think maybe like right now, um, the the FTX fiasco that's playing out. What what are your what are your thoughts on that? Uh, we don't have enough time, uh, but I think the. Um, I, I would just call FTX one of the last shoes to drop in the whole uh, deleveraging of the crypto space. And what we saw a lot of business practices in crypto were really hype, uh, hyping up new tokens and um, using various business practices to kind of stimulate growth 
and token adoption. And um, you know, by token prices going up, that would bring more attention to the software project. And people just went too far. And um, the analogy I use is what FTX um, had a lot of small cap stocks on their balance sheet, which is fine. They made a lot of money in them, great. But they borrowed against it. And you know, you just don't borrow against small cap stocks because they're number one, very volatile, so they can go down super fast. And then also they can be hard or impossible to sell. Um, and that's that's really this FTX um, bankruptcy last week is really, I think, was started in in Q2 through the Luna Terra, and it's just taken a long time and and probably some unethical practices on their behalf to lengthen the time that they had uh, before they declared bankruptcy. Yeah. Do you, what do you think are like some of the um, more near term effects? Like, does this um, does this impact like institutional adoption of Bitcoin? Like what, what do you think are some of the more knock on effects of this? Um, I do think so. Um, most of the institutions like the endowments and pension funds I talk to actually don't buy Bitcoin or Ethereum. They invest in venture capital funds. And what we saw is some very prominent venture capital funds invested in FTX. And we also know that they ended up not just owning companies um, like most venture capital firms, but also some of these tokens. And they just didn't do a good job of managing their token exposure. So uh, I think that that is, I think institutional investors are going to be saying, is venture capital really the way we want to get access uh, to uh, the opportunities of blockchain and Ethereum? Um, so that's one thing. We, we offer uh, a liquid token strategy, which is more diversified, more, more liquid, I think, um, and therefore better risk managed um, than venture capital. So I, I will say I'm talking my book a little bit. Um, you know, can I just say something positive about, yeah, about the course. crypto future? Because, uh, you know, people are very skeptical about it. I will say that um, the good news for investors is that the leverage is out of the system. And I think that in the summer of next year, 2023, Bitcoin goes through that what they call these happening cycles where it's harder to mine Bitcoin. And the next one is in 2024. So I think in the second half of 2023, investors will start looking at, you know, maybe it's time to buy some. So uh, we'll see if there are any investors left in crypto. But um, I would say that that cycle should be positive uh, next year. Yeah. And at that time, right, the Fed will be have done raising rates and they won't be tightening. Maybe they'll still have credibility, you know, to stick with that theme. But, you know, they're they're they're, they're probably done tightening. So it might be a good time. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting point, too. I can talk about it. Let's just get the the leverage out of the system there. And um, you help me understand, like when you first got into Bitcoin or digital assets, I think it was 2017. Like what, what was it for you that was, um, you know, piqued your interest or was attractive from an investment perspective? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, I think as investors, we always have to like look out for new technology. So Bitcoin and crypto is certainly on my radar screen. But I think for some reason in 2027, I said, wow, I, I'm also, uh, you know, I'm a CEO, I'm a business person and gold funds, as we talked about, is, is one of the things that we're a leader in. So I, I, I'm, a, I'm afraid of disruption, right? Um, if you want to say that our ETF business helped disrupt active management, I didn't want something else to come around like Bitcoin. 
and disrupt our gold business. And so that's why I hit the books and listened to the podcast and really tried to educate myself. And I said, look, I, I actually think this will appeal to a lot of investors. And I think um, maybe that was a minority view in early 2017, but um, I think that's definitely proven to be the case now. Even, even where the Bitcoin price is now, it's up many multiples from, from there. And we've seen tens of millions of Americans buy uh, by Bitcoin on Coinbase and Gemini and other exchanges. So, um, you know, so that, yeah, that's what led me to, to Bitcoin paranoia. Yeah. How do you, how, how do y'all like, um, help me understand, like, how do you guys, um, you know, help folks access the, the asset or like, how does it work? Like from, if, if someone's interested in Bitcoin, like how does, how do you all express that interest? Yeah. Um, very simply, we have an ETF in the United States that tracks Bitcoin futures, and we have an ETN in Europe that tracks Bitcoin. Uh, so that's uh, you know that's the most easily you know uh, accessed vehicle right now. I could again talk for a long time about regulation and what's available and what's not available, but that's um, that's what you can get now. Got it. Um, so that, that's like a futures ETF. Um, I know I'm not I'm not a full expert in this space by any means. Um, wasn't did, didn't folks want a spot ETF? Wasn't that one of the things people have been pushing for? Yeah, let me let me explain why. Um, so, all commodity funds and ETFs that are out there, they don't actually buy the commodity. Generally speaking, except for gold, right? They they're not buying oil barrels and putting them in a bank somewhere. They're investing in the futures curve, and the futures curve can be very different in terms of performance than the underlying commodities, which we find is very confusing to investors. And a part of our job is to simplify things and, and meet investor expectations. We don't know what the future holds, but at least the funds should perform in line with their expectations. And we know from the commodities world that the futures market can distort prices a lot. Um, in 2006, I think, because of the shape of the futures curve, commodity, sorry, oil, crude oil funds underperformed the price of crude oil, spot crude, by 20%. I mean, when someone buys an oil fund and it underperforms by 20%, you know, you're going to get disappointed investors. So the reason people want spot Bitcoin ETF is because they don't want the effect of the futures curve on the price. Now, um, actually, since these funds came out, uh, they've tr done a really good job of tracking Bitcoin. So uh, maybe it won't be, since it's a financial asset, it, it won't be um, as different from spot. But that's why people want spot, because of the risk that the futures curve can change the uh, performance. Do you think we'll ever, we'll see a, a spot ETF at any point or in the near term? Uh, right, right now, um, especially with FTX, you know, um, and, and I, you know, I do advise our local New York state uh, crypto regulator. So not that that persuades me one way or the other, but I think Washington, D.C., and we do work with the SEC a lot through our ETF business is still very um, confused as to which direction they want to go, um, partially because of the complexity of the subject and partially because we have overlapping uh, regulatory agencies. The, the, few, the commodities regulator, the securities regulator, and the banking regulators are all looking at crypto um, you know, and, and think they have some jurisdiction. So it's, it's, it's 
kind of frozen right now. And so I don't see a change to that anytime soon. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like you, you've been um, at the forefront of like recognizing disruptive forces, like, you know, starting the gold ETF um, in 2006. And I think it's kind of steeped in the history of the firm too. And um, recognizing digital assets in 2017. Um, how, like, I want to kind of zoom in a bit more on the thesis. Like, do you see it as like a, as a form of digital gold? Cause you mentioned like it was at the time you were seeing it like as a competitor to gold and that's why you wanted to do your research. Sure. I mean, Bitcoin, look, let me say, first of all, I can't prove what I'm about to say <laughs> because we don't have enough history, but um, I do think that Bitcoin because of its limited supply um, and its ability to survive a lot of tests, uh, appeals to gold investors. And I can tell you, I've spoken with hundreds of our gold clients and they've also invested in Bitcoin. So I think I have some, you know, some evidence that they, that the mental model for Bitcoin to be a store of value against paper money is, is true in the minds of a lot of investors. But you're right, um, Julia, the, there's a lot of other um, dimensions of what's going on in um, the blockchain or cryptocurrency world, Ethereum is probably the, the the large cap stock, if you will, of that blockchain world. And um, you know the the believers in it think that this database technology can really lower costs for consumers in the financial payments and security settlement area, and obviously also compete directly with uh, you know IT and software companies because Ethereum is a database just like Oracle is a database company. So um, you know that that's that's the premise. I guess our view from an investment perspective is there's a reasonably good chance that some value gets created out of this technology and so you want to have it part of your growth portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, um, like have some sort of um, exposure to it. And um, I'm kind of like sensing like, you know, maybe I wonder, um, given the the FTX situation, I don't know the level of Bitcoin right now. It's probably, I don't know, 16 or something uh, and and change. Um, I just I just wonder, like. Like, it sounds like there's still confidence in it. Um, It's not going anywhere, at least not right now. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I think we'll see. Uh, a lot of people, uh, well, there's a lot of talent, a lot of talented developers um, in California and globally that have moved, have changed their careers and started developing software using uh, Ethereum and other kind of database technologies. Let's keep it general. Uh, so we'll see if that talent uh, continues to go there. Uh, we know that a lot of capital is going there. The amount of money allocated to crypto or blockchain venture capital funds last year, I think it was like $50 billion. It's a huge number. So the capital is there. The talent is there. We, we just need to see some of these software uh, applications, I think, u- more usable for the average person. And that's what's called Web3. And we're just not there yet. So we'll see if we get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if we get there. Um, we've talked a lot in this conversation. We've talked about a lot of different areas in this conversation, um, whether it was, you know, kind of the macro picture, the Fed, inflation, um, of course, uh, digital assets as well. And, you know, as we start to round it out here, just kind of wondering, like, what are the kind of big risks that you kind of think about or what are the things that kind of keep you up, things that are in the back of your mind, um, you know, 
maybe in the year ahead, like what are those risks for you today? Um, I don't mean this in a risk area, but I th if you think of big multi-year trends besides the energy transition that I talked about, another one is going to be the trajectory of China's economy. China was a huge driver, like, like China or not, like you don't have to, you know, you just have to know its effect on the economy because it and the United States were the two biggest drivers of global growth by a mile over the last 20 years. And China's economy is just going to be traveling at a slower trajectory. You know, I like to say, like, think about two or three percent GDP growth. Um, and part of that is their demographics. Um, over the next uh, 80 years, their population is actually going to shrink from 1.4 billion to 800 million. They're about to go through uh, their their labor force probably peaked last year. So their their population is going through sort of what Japan is. And so I just think investors who have that framework will Indonesia and India and Brazil maybe pick up the growth or Africa. We, we don't know. But that's part of the big ingredients to, you know, investors is where is growth coming from because growth can drive profits. So that would be the, the thing that I would highlight um, looking at forward. Yeah, the yeah, slow down and also the the demographic story. Like how I mean, I don't know, like how one might think about like how to how, how would that play out? Like how would that I mean, hypothetically, like how does that kind of transpire? I mean, I think um, you know, equity portfolio managers are already doing this, but what do you, you know, you, know, you don't want to own um, baby diaper companies. You want to own adult diaper companies, right? You want to, you want to have healthcare as a healthy part of your portfolio. So you just kind of shift, um, you know, kind of, I think where your equity exposure is. Um, I think, you know, the markets kind of do that naturally, but I think that's what you want to keep in mind. It's just, a, it's such a big, important structural trend um, that I, that I think it's worth pointing out. Yeah. Um, well, we've talked again like about opportunities that you see. I know there's some opportunities in fixed income, the risks, um, you know. Um, any parting thoughts for the folks listening or is there anything like I, that we didn't bring up um, that you, this just kind of, you're kind of keen to talk about? Um, yeah, I just, just to, I would just summarize, right? This has been, um, there's, there's three big drivers on financial markets. There's, you know, is the is your central bank printing money? Is your um, is your government your central government spending money? And how's the economy doing? Right. And so all three were kind of negative for investors this year. The Fed absolutely stopped printing money. Money supply growth is zero or slightly negative right now, and you have quantitative tightening. I think with the split um, in Congress now that we know, um, but it was probably projected. You're not going to see a lot of government spending. Even uh, Larry Summers and leaders of the Democratic Party don't think that we should be spending a lot of money because it just keeps driving inflation up. And the you know the world economy is going to be um, in a slow growth phase next year because Europe is certainly in a recession, and China is only starting to regain some some momentum. So um, all of that is to say, don't sit in cash. Um, there's a lot of damage that's been done, um, and and own bonds if if you're if you're scared but just don't stay in cash because ultimately uh the price of staying in cash is is you know is really the worst for investors and savers is that just because of the inflation eating away at the cash that you're just holding on to yeah i mean look in financial markets you generally get like over over time eight percent a year right 
And in the bank, what do you get? One or 2% a year. I mean, that is such a dramatic difference. You know, we focus on all the wiggles, but that is just just being in the market. And what I saw a lot after the financial crisis, I don't, I don't know if you experienced this, but people were just so shell-shocked. They became too conservative at the wrong time. So they were in this super conservative fixed income stuff, and they gave up so much return. Um, and so that's my, uh, you know, that's my concern, uh, you know, for investors going into the new year. Yeah. I imagine there's probably a lot of psychology in it, too, like making one get too conservative. Very simple. That is, oh, God, you just uh, like hit my thought, you know, my, my hot button. That is why I think, in, you know, a history and the reminder of how things can change because recency bias. Like we are so focused on the like even our regulations make us do it focused on our track records the last 12 months when the next 12 months can be entirely different. And so you, we need tricks as investors to offset that recency bias 100 percent. Wait, wait well, how do you do that? Yeah. What are the tricks? Well, I think you hire a financial advisor who's, you know, who yells at you every time you want to go to cash. Right. I mean, literally, it's worth it. Um, you know, to get that advice. So, uh, you know, th things like that. Um, a spouse, <laughs> yeah. a friend, right? Stay invested. Um, read a reread a book, right? Uh, you know, stay in equities. So, um, yeah. So that's kind of my uh, that that absolutely recency bias. I think is is you know, Michael Lewis has written some great books on you know and and uh, and others, right? On on psychology and investing, but that's the that's the biggest cause of um, misallocation. I think. That is so fascinating. Um, we just kind of get in our own heads and recency bias. Um, Jan, really interesting conversation. I feel like I, I took a ton of notes because I feel like I learned a ton from you, um, especially on fixed income. Wh where can folks go to learn more? Maybe, um, you know, where can they follow you on social media? Where can they find you or learn more about, um, you know, your firm, your funds? Um, so I'll just sure. pass it back to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, our firm website is, is vanek.com, um, V-A-N-E-C-K.com. But um, I'm on Twitter, uh, Jan Van Eck, number three, and and also I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you'll love this. I, I post my favorite podcast episodes. I learn so much through podcasts. It's like it's such a treat to, to listen. Okay, what are your favorites? <laughs> uh, well, my, my two that I feel like I enjoy every week because some of them, um, you know, change around in, in terms of episodes. But I think the All In podcast, it's a little bro-ish. I love I the All In pod. That's <laughs> a good it. job of summarizing the public markets, the private markets. And then I love Friedberg's technology stuff. Yeah. Um, and then for crypto, um, there's one out of BlockWorks called Empire, which I think has just got amazing, you know, insights on a regular basis. If you have to, you know, summarize it to, to one. Um, so those are those are just my 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 go tos. But, you know, I probably have like 50 that I track. I love it. <laughs> well, I had Dave Friedberg, Sultan of Science on for a long extended science corner on this podcast. So for folks, I don't know. He's my favorite bestie. I don't know if you have a favorite bestie, but definitely mine. Um, I, I was I was psyched to be on a Zoom with him a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and, you know, ag, which he's really into ag tech is very much part of what I was talking about in terms of energy transition. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot. I mean, he's he's great. And there's a lot of exciting stuff that he's doing. And that is that part of y'all are expressing like that is part of uh, like a realm of like being able to invest in that area. Is that something y'all are doing? Yeah, well, we have the biggest ag ETF 
um, ticker symbol Moo, M-O-O. Uh, and then we have uh, an ag, a much smaller ag tech uh, ETF. Um, so yeah, um, and, and we do a lot of research in the private area as well. Really cool. I really enjoyed having you on. Jan Van Eck, CEO of Van Eck Funds. So great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.